Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and I'm excited to introduce my special guest to you. But before doing so, I just want to say thank you to uh, all of our viewers and uh, subscribers. Thanks so much for your support. And a special thank you to our patron supporters uh, who uh, graciously give to the cause here. And so thank you to you guys. And if you yourself want to become a patron supporter, you can follow the Patreon link in the description below and become a supporter. And uh, also want to say to our audience, if you have any questions from either myself or Father White, uh, to, I just gave away who I'm having on, sorry. If you have any questions for my guest, uh, you can uh, comment in the, in the live chat and I'll address those near the end. We'll have a time of Q&A at the end. But uh, since I already gave it away, let me go ahead and bring in my special guest. His name is uh, Father uh, Thomas Joseph White. Um, Father White, how are you doing today, sir? Very well. Good to be here, Hayden. Very happy really, to be on. Yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to do this. Uh, Father White is uh, hailing all the way uh, from Rome, and so that's uh, quite a bit of ways from Texas here. It just always astonishes me, astonishes me, and I comment on it like every episode, but that uh, I get to do this sort of stuff, talking to people all around the world. Um, and so it's really kind of cool, but, uh, yeah, so I really appreciate you coming on and doing this. I think I first became uh, familiar with, uh, who you are through, uh, Matt Frad, who, uh, hosts, uh, Pints with Aquinas, or it might, it might be called the Matt Frad Show now, I can't remember. And so, uh, I'm a, a listener and a watcher of his stuff, and so I think that's where I first became, uh, familiar with who you are, but, uh, let's, I'll go ahead and give you, uh, the, the time to introduce yourself for those who may or may not know who you are. Thank you. Well, I'm a Dominican priest, which means I'm a member of the Dominican Religious Order, which is the order founded by St. Dominic in the 13th century, and it's the order that also Thomas Aquinas was a member of. I um, am the director of the Thomistic Institute, which is an institute located within the Dominican University in Rome, known affectionately as the Angelicum. And uh, we are uh, at the heart of Rome. We do a lot of education of seminarians, priests, lay people, and Catholic religious um, and, you know, my specialty is in Catholic doctrine, Christian doctrine of God, uh, Christology, Trinitarian theology, grace and nature. And I teach a, a great deal on Thomas Aquinas' thought. Yeah, thank you uh, so much for introducing yourself and your talk about teaching on the uh, thought of Thomas Aquinas. And we were kind of discussing beforehand, before we went live here, uh, it's kind of odd uh, for, for me as a uh, Protestant evangelical to be... Uh, just to even know who Thomas Aquinas is, is I find that many people that are, grew up with my background don't even know who Thomas Aquinas is, is and uh, it's unfortunate, but uh, I went to an evangelical seminary where Thomistic philosophy was uh, believed and taught, and so it's kind of a, do you find that kind of strange uh, that a Protestant evangelical uh, seminary would uh, hold to a Thomistic philosophy like that? It's not historically typical, but it's become more customary for um, American Reformed theologians and, I would say, loosely, broadly speaking, Protestants who are interested in the classical doctrine of God to become engaged with Aquinas because his uh, her thought has a lot of a great number of resources for thinking about traditional concepts of God. For example, God's existence, his eternity, his um, unchangeableness or immutability his omnipotence, his goodness, his wisdom, and for thinking about things like the, the mystery of the Trinity and the Incarnation and even the life of grace in ways that are very congruent with or uh, harmonious with a lot of traditional Protestant beliefs. And so as you get kind of a more experimental modern Protestant theology, you also get a, a desire to look back towards older resources in Augustine and Aquinas. And so there's a fledgling group of very gifted young um, Protestant Thomist theologians out there. Hmm, yeah, yeah I, did, I just always find it uh, very fascinating that that's becoming the case, and I'm glad it's becoming the case, but uh, yeah, it's very good. Um, kind of along the same lines, uh, one of the questions I had for you was, why do you think, uh, before we get in, uh, by the way, we're going to be discussing the distinction that Thomas Aquinas makes between existence and essence, and how this can be formulated as an argument for the existence of God, but before we get to that, uh, uh, what reasons would you give for recommending the thought of Thomas Aquinas to uh, Catholics, Protestants, just whoever? Uh, what, what makes Thomas Aquinas so uh, valuable uh, and or important? Well, let me just name a few things. The first thing is that St. Thomas has a very uh, nuanced and, mm, I would say, 
helpful understanding of the the relationships between faith and and, and natural reason. So he has a sort of uh, deep uh, epistemological uh, analysis of the relationship between the knowledge we have through means of philosophy, the natural sciences, revelation, how the truths of the faith are compatible with the knowledge we gain through philosophical reflection on the world, scientific understanding of the world, and how these things can all coexist harmoniously without competition. And uh, the second thing I'd say about Aquinas that's very actual is his doctrine of the human person, which takes very seriously that we are animals, that human beings are biological animals of a highly developed kind, but we also have irreducibly spiritual, immaterial features of our existence, especially through thought and freedom that are expressed in and through our animality. So he allows you to take uh, sort of take realistically all the, the dense knowledge we gain through modern biological and neuroscience, neuroscientific understanding of the human being, and also understand us as spiritual creatures made in the image of God. Uh, this also has effects on his moral teaching, which is not a teaching first and foremost of commandments and duties, of what you must do and must not do, although he takes the commandments in the Bible extremely seriously and comments on them. But it's first and foremost a, a theory of human flourishing, happiness, and virtue. So it's about how grace and nature together can make us persons of moral excellence who uh, orient their life toward happiness and love uh, through acts that make us um, thrive as loving human beings and as wise human beings. So it's a kind of a less heavy morality that also has, I would say, deep... Um, uh, conviction about the things we ought to do and not do, but for more profound motivations based on happiness. And the last thing I would just say is that Aquinas has a very deep gaze into the mysteries of God, uh, the mystery of the Trinity, um, the notion of the human being made in the image of God, uh, grace and its capacity to transform us, um, the whole mystery of the incarnation, life, suffering, passion and resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there's a tremendous wealth of spiritual and theological insight uh, that allows us to understand why the mysteries of Christianity are so uh, illuminative and how they help us understand the meaning of our, of our human journey. So for all those reasons, Aquinas is a very uh, robust thinker and one we do well to engage with. Yeah, so I, I remember learning about Thomas Aquinas and, and just like the first time I became acquainted with his work and his writings, his teachings, and I just and specifically the philosophical stuff. I, I remember thinking, and of course he draws heavily upon Aristotle, but I, I I remember thinking, wow, this is basically just common sense systematized. Um, he kind of has that. Um, I think Plato talked about, you know, a good teacher is someone who who does that, who brings it out of you, and you realize, wow, I kind of already knew this. Um, but I wasn't able to put it in those kind of words that Thomas does or that Aquinas does. And uh, th I, that's just what I remember. One of the first thoughts I had when I was studying Aquinas was, wow, he's, he's really saying things or, or in this case writing things that I kind of already knew intuitively, but now he's giving a very robust argument in favor of it or he's articulating it in such a way that I just never would have been able to. And so that, I think that's kind of what initially uh, drew me to Aquinas. And um, yeah, and that helps, and and the and the very intuitive things that he's able to to put in such a robust way helps think about the more complex things that aren't so intuitive, and um, yeah, that's just kind of what I remember uh, being drawn to at first. Aquinas um, is not a philosophical skeptic, you know. Yeah, he, exactly. Aquinas thinks we have uh, initial inclinations of the mind prior to rational argument, by which we grasp basic features and structures and reality around us and come to know things even as children in a pre-philosophical light that um, orient us intellectually toward reality and that philosophy builds on and grounds itself in that initial intellectual perception of reality. So as you call it, common sense is first and then we go deeper in insight into what we partially always already knew about the world and as it were dig into uh, reality and carve it at the joints to figure out the compositions and natures of things. And so his metaphysics builds on that initial insight that we all have as intellectual creatures, but then goes deeper into analysis of its causes and reaches up toward God. 
And he thinks the faith is similar in a supernatural way. It gives you initial insight into the reality that Jesus is real, that the resurrected Christ is real, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons, that God is one, and so forth. And then you can go deeper into that mystery by kind of a, a, a scrutiny or an intellectual awareness, but without going against the initial intuitions, the kind of basic core truths that you already knew. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a good way of putting it. See, I, I, there's things I want to say, and other people just know how to say it way better. That's kind of how it goes. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, when you read Aquinas, you never have to come across something like uh, we can't know that the external world exists or something weird that you might get in a Cartesian skeptic philosophy or something like that. Um, and that's kind of what really drew me to Aquinas. But anyway, uh, let's, let's kind of get into the, the subject of conversation today, which is this uh, distinction that uh, Aquinas famously makes between existence and essence and then kind of how this can be formulated into an argument for the existence of God. Um, but I thought it might be helpful to start with just kind of defining essence and existence. And so, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let you take it from there. All right. Well, this, this is, in a certain way, the heart of Aquinas's original philosophy is that he takes elements from previous thinkers like Albert the Great and Avicenna about what we call the essences of things or their natures and the unique existence of each thing, everything having a singular existence being a uniquely actual reality and he develops his own aware uh, theory of this it's has some influence from aristotle but it's also very original uh, they're not simple concepts to define i'll try to make them didactic and clear so let's start with essence aquinas thinks every reality every natural reality at least artifacts is a kind of different case every natural reality has a certain nature or essence now, when he defines an essence, he then splits that in two. He says everything that we experience in this world that has a natural essence is a composite of form and matter. Let's talk about that for a second. Sure. Uh, when we talk about <clears throat> the matter of a thing, what he means is, in some sense, he does mean the material parts. So if you take a, a cat walking through your living room, there's organic material parts, the little cat heart, cat gallbladder, cat intestines, cat lungs, and then there's the parts of the parts, which you could say are, say, the cells and the chemical compounds and so forth, and you could go down into the atomic structures. But <clears throat> on some level, he thinks that in everything that exists, there's a, not just like material parts, but there's a material indeterminacy or potency for transformation. And by this, he means that in every uh, reality that is material, there's a uh, indetermination or potency by which you could redetermine it to become something else. So if you took a block of wood, you could, because of its material potency, you could determine that block of wood, you could repurpose it to become a statue of 36,000 things, actually more than that, an infinite number of things. Or if you try to divide uh, a reality like a, a stone up into smaller bits and smaller bits and smaller bits, you get down to an atom, you can still cut that quantity in two. And if you cut that quantity in two, you can cut that quantity in two. So there's a certain material indeterminacy or potency by which you can keep dividing. So everything we know is complicated because it has this material parts composition and material potency undergirding it that allow it to be, as it were, generated into something else or you know, corrupted and regenerated, made into something else like logs catching fire or human beings being conceived and being born and then dying, you know, we all go through this flux of material change. But that is not the only way to explain a natural reality because we're not just the material parts or the sum of our parts. We're also natural realities having a kind of determination. We are a kind of thing. That's to say we have what Aquinas calls a form. He doesn't mean the physical shape. He doesn't mean the, mean the way something looks, if I imagine it. He means the deeper structure or determination of nature. So to go back to the cat walking through the living room, the cat, because of its cat typology or nature, does cat-like things. It hunts birds. It, uh, it tortures insects. It eats cat food. It lounges on the sofa. It shows studied indifference to human beings. Uh, it walks on four legs. It bristles when it's frightened and so forth. And there's a whole, you know, way you could study not just the biology but the behavior patterns even the philosophical questions of what a living being is and it's obvious that the cat's different than say the house plant because the cat has animal knowledge uh sensate knowledge and memories 
and affections. And it's different. The houseplant's obviously different than um, a stone because the houseplant's growing and putting down roots and you know, nourishing itself through photosynthesis. So you get different kinds of things in the universe, non-living things, vegetative living things, animal living things, intellectual human living things. And so these natural kinds, but they all have matter. They all have material parts and composition. So when we talk about an essence, we're talking about an individual thing having a certain kind of natural form, say being a human being, and having a certain uh, discriminant uh, material body and material parts, material indeterminacy. So if I say that you know uh, John Edwards has a natural essence, I mean that John Edwards has uh, you know a, a, a natural form. He's a human being. He's not a cat, a house plant, or stone. And he has material uh, composite parts, not just organs and cells and all that, but he also has this base material potency that characterizes him, which means he was capable of being generated in the first place from two parents, and he's susceptible to being corrupted through death. And so, you know, that's that matter form composite is proper to him in his human nature or his human essence. Yeah. Now, that's a lot to think about, and you can yeah. spend your life thinking about. But if I just say one thing about that, that's a non-reductive ontology, or at least Aquinas thinks he's got an adequately non-reductive ontology because we don't have a human being being just a form, like a soul separated from a body or an idea separated from a concrete reality. Uh, as a kind of platonic form might be, and at the same time, we're not just a heap of matter or a clump of things or a, a, a bundle of atoms. We're we're actually an integrated entity, a, a kind of substance, a substantial being that we call a human, an, an individual of a human nature. Yeah, I'm, tr I'm trying to decide uh, before moving on to existence, uh, which follow-up question I want to ask to that, which is. Uh, I think I'll go with this one. So some people will say there, um, there, there is no such thing as um, an essence. Uh, what yeah. we call essences or natures are just what our minds are mapping onto reality. Um, yeah. Not in in reality itself. It's just in our minds. What actually are, what actually exists, are these smaller parts. Uh, whether you want to yeah. reduce reduce it all the way down to quarks or whatever, there's actually just these smaller parts. Uh, that are yep simples uh, physical simples that are in these uh, conglomeration or whatever a combination of them and uh, our mind maps onto them what what you're calling natures and essences so is there um, anything that you can appeal to to answer that or are we basically going to and I know that you were just saying this for simplicity's sake whenever you were just speaking or or are we basically just going to say well cats are obviously different than humans. Um, do we basically just appeal to observation, or do is there an actual argument against um, what, the objection I was there just? Are, yeah, no, that's a great question. There are a lot. So there's a lot of you. You pose sort of three objections or two objections at least. One is whether we can know that there are any natural kinds at all, and another is whether the natural kinds in question are microscopic and are uh, atomic simples. Let's just call them atomic simples that explain the larger so-called conventional medium-sized goods around us. Um, let's deal with the second objection first. There are lots of arguments against that position in Aquinas, but let me just note that we can take that objection in two ways. The first is to say um, the realities around us are composite realities that are effectively bundles of smaller simples. Let's just call them atoms for the sake of argument. You could go to quarks or bosons, but let's just call that. Let's just stay with atoms for the sake of an example. And we really should reduce everything to the simples, to the atoms, in order to explain the larger supposed concrete substances. Um, okay, the first issue about that is it doesn't get you around the problem of essences, because if you really want to explain the composite uh, realities in the light of the simples, you're going to need a taxonomy of simples in their distinctive kinds. So as Aristotle and Aquinas both point out, you're back to the problem of essences just at a microscopic level. So if you start breaking down atoms into their component parts or naming kinds of atoms, and then thinking about how molecules are composite in order to build up an account of the larger bundles, you still have to have a taxonomy of the kinds of chemical compounds and the elements of the atoms that allows you to identify stable structures that are essentially present in different kinds of very basic simples. I mean, you're not going to be able to get an account of the simples without neutrons and protons and electrons. Those are kinds. So they have essences. 
So it, without a doctrine of essences, it's very hard to do any kind of work in terms of universal causal explanation. So as long as the person accepts there's universal causal explanation, let's just say for the sake of argument there are no living things, no larger macro compounds, and no human beings. We're just deluded realities that, that think that we have consciousness and being, but really as we explain ourselves to ourselves better, our consciousness evaporates, our living being evaporates, and we become a bunch of small, simple atoms. Okay, great, but those atoms still have metaphysical, they're not totally metaphysically parsimonious. They have different kinds of structures and then therefore specific types, and they all have material parts and are divisible. So the doctrine of essence still obtains. A second then thing to say is, well, should we really concede even that much? Because if we really want to give up on any distinction between the stone, the house, I mean, it, let me put it this way. If we go down to the atomic level to explain everything, Aristotle and Aquinas are going to tell us, we're going to have trouble distinguishing any real ontological properties of stones, plants, cats, and human beings. But it does seem that there are a couple of re de deeply compelling reasons not to be so reductionist. One is that you find substantial unity in these realities that seems to have an organizational a function as an organizational principle. That's to say, all the supposed symbols, the atomic elements in the houseplant, are definitely organized and arranged differently than in the stone, the cat, or the human being because of what the plant is. It's very basic features, it's organic unity, the way it self-organizes, the nutrient structures within it, its operations and powers. So it seems like there's some kind of top-down or organizational formal dimension of the very atomic structures in question that can't really be got at if you go to the reductive view. And yet it's obviously in the reality because the reality seems to function with a substantial unity that was organizing the very realities that we're observing and trying to explain. In other words, top uh, bottom-up explanation doesn't seem to be adequate to do all the work you need to explain the very simples in question as they obtain in the essences, as I'm calling them, of the things. The second thing is you can't really explain easily in the plant, for example, its powers, dispositions, and operations just by looking at its material composites. In other words, plants can do things. They have the power of photosynthesis. They have the power of growth and self-organization. They have the power to nurture, nourish themselves, grow, repair themselves, and reproduce. And they have this power through operations that they regularly uh, trade in or you know perform, and that or that united that sort of you can call it phenomenologically united set of operations that we observe seems to require something in the reality ontologically that is doing all that self-organizing that is performing all those functions. So it's very difficult to explain the unity and operation, the dispositions and powers of the plant. Uh, without there being a concept of form, and all of that absolutely affects all the um, the interior organization of the more basic, you might say, more uh, micro uh, material parts. You know, so I think we have to kind of, in a certain way, better describe reality than those who want to reduce reality to a set of material principles that would be totally explanatory, and say, you know, look, you're going to get. You're going you're gonna to wind up in a, a reductionism that doesn't do justice even to the material symbols. Yeah. And then the yeah. last thing I'd say is about the kind of deep skepticism of language and knowledge. You just have to decide how far you want to go with that. I mean, if you really want to go all the way to say that there are no universal kinds knowable, then every plural denomination of language is intrinsically unintelligible. Like when I say there are two or three human, there are three human beings in the car. What do you mean by car? What do you mean by human beings? So at least on some conventional level, it seems like to use language is to denote form. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it, it seems like a high, high price to pay to give up all indications of universal kinds. Um, now you could say, well, we, we construct an impression. I mean, Kant says, you know, we kind of construct an impression and we trade in ideas of universal kinds without necessarily getting the noumena or the, the, the real essence of the thing, it's all based on our perceptions subjectively. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there we'd have to get into a longer conversation about the principle of non-contradiction. And like, yeah. if I really want to say that two human beings, that a thing, that are multiple realities around me that are not reducible to one another, I'm going to have to give in to some acceptance of ontological distinction between things. And at that point, I think I'm going to have to name 
some non-trivial features of reality that obtain in it essentially and properly. And at that point, I'm working with a kind of initial theory of essence. Yeah. Uh, it's, and, you know, so I think we need some kind of concept of essence in the external world just to practice reference by which we denote the realities around us in linguistically consistent ways and then engage in explanations of na natures and their causes. Now, I, I like the way you put it, and so you started off by saying, which I, I like to do when at all possible, is say, even if I see this, um, you're still not showing that essences don't exist, and they're not a, and that they aren't a composite of form and matter. Uh, that uh, physical simple is still going to have an essence and be divisible, as you were speaking about. And and but even and 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 then your se second point is that we don't really want to see that anyway. But just saying that even if we did, it w you uh, wouldn't be showing that essences do not exist. And uh, I can't right. remember who I was, I was reading the other day. I think it was Odenberg, perhaps, and he was saying, um, take water as an example. Of course, that reduces to hydrogen and oxygen. Uh, but hydrogen and oxygen have uh, potentials or powers that uh, water does not and vice versa so water boils at whatever and of course hydrogen uh, can burn but you can't burn water etc and so it's like these things don't really reduce they have properties powers and potentials that their parts do not is that kind of thinking along the right lines yeah i, I absolutely agree with that i think that that's very much along the, I'm, I'm thinking along similar lines yeah definitely okay so probably the more difficult thing uh to uh, define as existence, and uh, I've been rereading uh, Etienne. Uh, I don't probably not gonna pronounce his name correctly, but uh, I pronounce his name Etienne Gilson, and uh, I've been reading his uh, book Being and some philosophers, and he's uh, currently trying to define this, this. He's trying to do this right here, which is define the word existence, uh, which you think would might be a very simple thing to do, but it it, it uh, it's kind of the most obvious thing in the world, and yet it's so elusive. So how do we go about defining existence? Well, existence is, the first thing to say about it is for Aquinas, as Aquinas rightly notes, existence doesn't have a form. It doesn't have a nature. The reason we know that is because everything that has nature exists. So let's say we were talking about this problem, which sounds very abstract, but it's actually the most concrete thing in the world. And you said, well, you know, it looks like everything exists. What is existence? I said, well, no, look, existence has a nature, right? And you're like, what, what's the nature of existence? I said, hey, the nature of existence is a lion. Existence is a lion, and you so you say, well, does that mean that only lions exist because only they are existence? And I say exactly, only lions <laughs> exist. If anything exists, it's a lion, right? That's obviously mad. Um, but that, but see, the the contrary affirmation is everything that has a nature, be it a lion or a fig tree or a star, supernova, aardvark, um, kangaroo, human being, uh, th that reality exists. Oh. Okay, so it seems like existence is something very ecumenical. It's everywhere. What does that mean then? I mean, because the other thing is, if you go to the matter-form composite, like, does my gallbladder exist? Does my big toe exist? Do the material parts in me exist? My little atoms and molecules, compounds, chemicals? They all exist. Does my nature exist as a human being, as one human being, the formal nature I possess? In my essence, yeah, that exists too, right? So the form and the matter exist. I can't find anything in me that doesn't exist, right? So existence seems to be everywhere, which means it seems now it seems vacuous. It's like so everywhere that it's like nothing. So you gotta get it in the problem of the one and the many. I mean, the pro here's the what's helpful is to see is that every essential kind of th every essence, every individual essence, every individual thing having a nature is a distinct existent. Aquinas calls that an ends in Latin. Having existence, which is, he calls essay or essa, depending on your pronunciation. Right. So every essentia, every essence, is an is found in an ends in a being or entity having existence. That's kind of commonsensical. We all are a being. We all have a nature, and we all really exist. What's our existence? Aquinas then looks at existence as something that, in a way, divides us from every other thing. My existence is not your existence. Your existence is not your father's existence. Your father's existence is not the existence of the cat or the, or the house plant or the supernova or the kangaroo. All these things exist. And in each case, the existence is proper and unique to that thing. 
this is kind of interesting, right? So I share humanity with you in the sense of like we're the same human, we have the same human nature. It's two different modal realizations, but I don't share existence with you. Existence is what, um, you know, sort of separates and renders in a way autonomous in being. And on the other hand, this is another, like I turn it around the other way. I do share existence with everything, not just with human beings. Like with you, I share nature. I don't share nature with the kangaroo, but I share existence with the kangaroo. Not in the sense that I am a kang the kangaroo, the kangaroo is me, but in the sense that the kangaroo exists and I exist. Right. Now, in his, in his case, his existence separates him off from everybody else, and my existence separates me off from everybody else, but it also puts us somehow in a community of beings. We all are real. We all really have existence. Okay, so now we're getting somewhere. Existence is proper to everything in its individuality, and it's also a certain community that's present in the multitude. Aquinas calls that latter thing ens commune, or esse commune, common existence, common being. So then when he wants to explain this, he goes on to use the Aristotelian distinction of potency and act. And he says, every one of us, because of our nature, our essence, is in potency to be or not be, to exist or not exist. And what essay is, or existence is, is the actuation of the essence, the actuation of our nature. That may sound like uh, some special language. I suppose it's technical, but it's not such a complicated idea. Each of us has a nature, human nature, for example, and that nature can exist or not exist. If it exists now, we exist in act, actually. I actually exist now, and before I existed, I, was, I could potentially exist, but didn't. I did not exist, and I now have the potency to one day not exist. I can be or not be, as Hamlet quite rightly says. So the, what existence helps you explain is how you get different natures that can be or not be can be or not be, can exist or not exist potent, in potency or act, and how this can be a feature of every element of that reality that makes it, in a certain sense, a separated reality distinct from all others. But by that very fact, because existence is what makes us our distinct self, our being, other than all the other beings, it's also something that analogously places us in a community with all the other realities that exist. We are in a way, in the communion of being with everything that is in creation in the world, and we are also a distinct realization of our nature and of being in virtue of our unique act of existence. Very good. Uh, let's see, one second here. Okay. I was listening to somebody the other day, and um, they were critiquing the Thomistic argument. I think they were critiquing Ed Fazer. And... Um, he said something to the effect of, I, I wrote it down, I should have brought it in here with me, but he said something like, yeah, I don't think existence is something um, which you can, uh, it's not a property that things have. And so, um, and he was saying if it was, then um, whenever we talk about things which do not exist, we would essentially be saying there is this thing that lacks the property of existence but that sentence itself assumes that the thing exists, and so what you would essentially be saying is this thing exists and lacks the property of existence, which is obviously a contradiction, and so you can't say that existence is a property of things. Um, I don't know what he's getting at, but... Um, that was the critic that said... Yeah, it was a critic who was saying that um, the, the problem between the essence and existence distinction, uh, he was critiquing the Thomistic argument, I think that was put forward by... Uh, Dr. Edward Fazer. Well, you know, you have to, I mean, I'm sure Ed could, could, he's a great metaphysician, he'd do a better job than me, but let me tell you, I think, at least the way you put it, uh -huh. your objector, your objector, in the way you articulated his objection, agrees with Aquinas. No surprise that we might have a few uh, technical difficulties. Uh, I was just bragging at the beginning about how awesome it is that we get to do such a thing, and then of course we have technical difficulties, but uh, that's okay, it's quite all right. Um, and so, um, let's see, I was saying that there was an objector who was saying um, what I just said, and then you said he actually turns out to actually be Thomistic, so, so go the, ahead. And yeah, so the objection was, at least as part of the objection, was that the uh, existence can't be attributed to, to a thing as a property, um, and that in a certain sense, if you, if you talk about it as a possible being, uh, as an essence, floating essence, you have to talk about it as already constituted prior to existence. I mean, actually, what's weird is, at least the way you articulated the objection, it sounds a lot like they're characterizing, it sounds like this is they're characterizing Aquinas the way Aquinas characterizes Avicenna. Avicenna 
has a distinction of essence and existence, but he thinks that um, existence is a property and an accident, a property of being of um, of essence. So God has ideas of essences already constituted, as it were, kind of platonic forms hanging around in his mind, and then he zaps them and he gives them existence as a kind of a a, a property or an accident. And they come into being. And Aquinas says this is uh, unworkable because existence is not just in the qualities or quantities or properties of things. Uh, you know, like having, for example, reason or free will is a property of a human being, but it's not all that the human being is. Uh, or having a body or having a soul, but the human being is more than just the body or the soul. It's a body-soul compound. Uh, so the whole substance, the whole being exists. And so he says you can't, you can't trade in the idea of existence or essay as a property. And you can't think about God as already having essences in his mind and then creating them by giving them this accidental property. God gives being to the whole reality. He gives existence and essence, total composite reality. Everything that exists, exists only because God's giving it all that it is in virtue of its existence and in virtue of its nature. So all natures, insofar as they are, come from God, and all existent natures, insofar as they exist, come from God. And so you don't want to think about existence as a property. It's much deeper. It's the actualization of all that is in every substantial thing in its properties and in its substance, in its very substantial being as a whole and in all the little properties that pertain to it. And so it, the way you predicate existence is a little different. You have to use kind of special rules that don't break with normal logic, but which, you know, um, imply special uses of logical for, logical forms of argument and denotation because you're trying to talk about what is deepest, richest, and most intensive in reality, what's this fundamental gift of existence, presence, and everything. Very good. Okay, then let's uh, go ahead and uh, move on here to the distinction that Aquinas makes between essence and existence. And so what, what does he mean by the, the real distinction and uh, you may have already kind of touched on it a little bit, but what does he mean by the real distinction, and how can we know that there's a real distinction between existence and essence? Yeah, it's sometimes called the real distinction. It's sometimes called the real composition. I like the last phrase. At least I think it's important to also say real composition, because what that makes clear to you is that he's not saying these are two separate things. Like, I'm walking down the street. I'm on one side of the road, and my, that's, my essence is on one side of the road. I, then on the other side of the road is my existence, and sometimes they're like in the same place. It's not like that. Um, this is a composition. It's also not a composition or a distinction like the distinction between a part of the body and another part of the body, or the way two compound chemicals, you know, engage with each other by contiguous proximity, a quantitative attachment. We're talking about a structural distinction in being, and what he's saying is. Um, Everything insofar it has every there are actually in reality only concrete entities he calls ends beings you and I are beings human beings but in them you can really distinguish you can distinguish but you can distinguish that there is really uh, a nature or essence and there really is existence proper to each one and so on a first take you could say this means that uh, you and I could have the same human nature and all human beings can have the same human nature. We're all equal. Some people are not less than human because of their skin color. They should not be discriminated against because of their skin color or treated unjustly for that reason because they are essentially and identically human. All people are human in virtue of being rational animals. And uh, then on the other hand, each of us is, despite that communality, each of us is a unique singular realization of human nature. We are each a distinct existent because of our unique existence. So, for example, the um, uh, egregious killing of a person who uh, does not in any way merit that killing is, to, is, is grave because not only because of the dignity of the human being, but also because we've extinguished a unique realization of human nature and a uniquely existent human person who's irreplaceable in the order of being. Right? So each of us has something in common by which we can talk about equality and identity, and each of us is a uniquely instantiated existent who's totally original. That's really a cool idea because the real distinction gives you the power to talk about that in virtue which we're all identical in kind and equal, and it has moral consequences as well as ontological 
you know, being on logical truth. At the same time, it allows you to talk about why each of us is an original instantiation, including an original instantiation, ultimately, of the image of God, because there's a distinct personalistic being in each of us. You know, we're each a human being, but the way that unfolds in each of us is distinctive. So that's cool. Um, now, why would you really have to go with the hard distinction between existence and essence? Well, because... One thing that's true about each of us and every created being, be it the human being, the kangaroo, the star, the aardvark, or the cactus, is none of us, in virtue of the natural kind of thing that we are, procures our own existence. So none of us is a cause of our own being. All of us come into be, being and exist in virtue of other agents or other factors or a, a an extrinsic causality. So it's the simplest thing in the world. Every human being is begotten of two other people, parents, and we only exist because of them. We would not exist were it not for them. But it's also true now, we only can continue to be sustained in existence because of other causalities like the air temperature and the quality of the oxygen. Therefore, we depend upon a larger atmosphere, ecological you know, equilibrium in the cosmos, proximity to the sun, larger solar system, and, you know, galaxy structure and whatnot. So we're very interdependent, even if we are autonomous beings, and our existence is, in a certain sense, communicated to us from others, and we are sustained in that existence in dependence upon others. Consequently, our nature is not the source of its own existence, either, either efficiently, in efficient extrinsic causality, I don't cause myself to be, nor merely in formal causality can I sustain myself in being. So that means that the, the nature really has to be in a certain sense actuated by existence, given existence, actuated by existence, but not itself, cannot be in itself either the formal or efficient cause of its own existence. So that's one way to think about the distinction. Now once you got that far, you're pretty close to the necessity of the existence of God. But we yeah. can we can wait. I'll wait to ask me the question to, to talk about why. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, that's going to be my next question because I think you explained it uh, perfectly. Whereas if existence and essence are not really distinct um, in unified substances, then um, what you're saying is that essence entails existence, or existence is found in in essence, which means that the thing exists essentially. But of course, the thing that exists essentially is um, something which couldn't possibly not exist. And of course, there was a time when I didn't exist, and there's going to be a time when I, know, when I die. And so, of, of course, I mean, it seems quite obvious that, of course, not. It would change me essentially to exist by nature if my existence, yeah. my na if it was, yeah, I mean, that's one way, that's another way to phrase it. Like, if, if my existence were identical with my essence or my nature, then it would pertain to my nature to possess existence. Right. Yeah. I don't possess existence by nature. I have existence, and therefore I can be or not be. Consequently, there is some ways in which it's meaningful to talk about a real ontological distinction in me between existing and my, my nature. I have a nature that can exist or not exist. Yeah, exactly. So I think that was good enough so we can move on, uh, on here to say, how does this distinction then become formulated into an argument for the existence of God? All right. Well, so if everything we experience can be or not be, and there is a real distinction, um, and that, you know, let me just go back. If existence is not identical with any one thing, like the lion or the cactus or the supernova or the human being, but it's common in all things, then it must be the case, existence not being as aquatic as in any genus of being. It's not any species or genus. It's present in every species and genus of being. All that is of whatever kind exists. That means there's a real distinction in everything that exists around us, anything which has a nature we can put in genus and species, all that real is real, that has existence. That means there's always a formal distinction, or re sorry, a real distinction between essence and existence. But it, wherever that's the case, and it is the case for us and many of the things we observe around us, everything we observe around us, wherever that's the case, then the thing must have its existence from others, another or others. That means that the universe we observe around us is composed of things that have received or are, are do receive existence from another or others. They are not the cause of their own existence. Which raises the question, where does their existence come from? Why do things exist? 
uh, that are able to be or not be, because all of them are caused. So then can we posit that everything that exists is essentially dependent on things that themselves in turn receive existence from another? Just think about that for a minute. Everything that exists must exist on dependence. Everything we, we see that we experience exists in dependence on others as caused in being. But can that in turn, all can all those realities in turn only depend on realities that receive their being in fact from others? Yeah, it can't work. You, you can't have an infinite series of beings that always are truly contingent or could be or not be that receive their existence from another truly uh, as a total explanatory principle of reality because you need a proportionate reason to explain why things are and exist. And if you just kick back every time, one more time, to a thing which, you know, I say, well, you know, A, alpha is first. It gave everything else existence. But alpha could be or not be, and actually alpha did receive its existence. Alpha received its existence from what? Uh, omega. Uh, okay. And omega received it from what? And I keep going through the Greek alphabet. The point is, I'm really looking at things that did and have and do receive their existence from another. It's not just theoretics. But those realities, in turn, require explanation from something first. You have to posit that there's something which has existence in virtue of its nature. And in Aquinas says that being God, what we call God, is not one who receives his existence from another. It's one who has existence by nature. And in therefore, in God, there does not obtain a real distinction between existence and nature. God is his existence. Now you get back to the lion problem. You say, well, wait a minute. The lion had existence and nothing else had existence. That was absurd. Now you're saying God is existence and gives it to everybody else. But aren't we now dealing with a lion problem? Because God is the, really the one who exists by essence. And we all exist by receiving existence from God. We, we have existence. It's truly, uh, true of us formally, but not from ourselves, from God and others giving it to us in a community. Okay, fine. How can that then be? Aren't we then now dealing with uh, a kind of sequestering of God of existence in a unique nature and depriving all other things of real being. No, the answer is no. First of all, we know we really exist, that we started there. We don't perceive God immediately. We perceive ourselves immediately. We know we have existence. We also know we aren't the cause of our own existence, that we can be or not be. And from there we infer a posteriori from effects moving to the from effects to a, a non-perceived cause that God must exist. When we posit existence of God's nature per se, we are not positing a, a nature in God the way we posit nature in the lion, the cactus, or the aardvark. We're saying that there's something distinctive about God's nature such that God possesses existence in pure actuality and has the perfection of every um, modality of being, you might say, that, the per that God possesses himself a perfection of being in such a way that he can give being to all other things um, in a way that is unique to his unknown nature. <laughs> is it, you know, we don't, we don't put God in a category of a created nature that receives existence. This is precisely where we go, we might say, apophatic into negative theology. Because the nature of God is perfect, is identical with his essence, he has, first of all, an, an, an infinite perfection of existence. He's not, a limit, he's not limited in his existence the way we are. He doesn't receive his existence from another. He can give existence to all others. And his nature is unlike that of all other created beings, because it's not a nature that receives being from another and that has a delimited perfection of existence. Right? We all have a finite nature. We, we, you might say, contract existence to ourselves in a finite way. I am not the cat. The cat's not the houseplant. All those things have different kinds of natures and dignities, and they are restrictive in their expression of what being is, cat being, plant being, human being. God doesn't have that restriction. He has a plenitude of existence, which is diffusive into all the perfections of the physical and living universe. He, he gives being to all things from his indiminishable plenitude, which is to us unknown. We know him through his effects. So his nature is mysterious. See, so Aquinas is, when Aquinas, what Aquinas finishes with here is that, in a way, I can say God is an ends, as a being, like other beings, and I can talk to God personally. I can make other arguments that God is personal. That's a different set of arguments. But I can talk about God as a being who's personal. But he's not a being among other beings. 
because he's the one who is in his perfection of existence, giving being to everything else. At the same time, he's not just a, an impersonal sea of being. Aquinas does say God is an infinite sea of being, an infinite existence, but not in an um, not in a uh, impersonalist way. He is uh, the one who, in his absolutely incomprehensible plenitude of existence as creator, gives being to all things and sustains things in all in being. Uh, always, uh, sorry, gives being to all things and is always sustaining all things in being uh, out of the plenitude of his own being without in any way being identical with the realities he creates. So um, in every um, cosmological argument, you're going to, I see two parts where you first start with some observation and work your way to something like a necessary being, or in this case, um, a being whose uh, essence and existence are identical or not distinct. And, uh, but then there's the second part, which is, okay, why should we call that being God? Or why does it follow that that being has the description that we classically have given to the being God? And so uh, kind of, I mean, that's a huge question, I know, um, but uh, kind of how do you go from there? First thing I would say is, you know, the, the arguments for the existence of God don't work in a... Um, in a two in an overly atomic way, it's more like building a cathedral the way Aquinas does it. In other words, you put up different pillars and eventually you put on the roof, and then you understand how the different strands hold together. So when you read the Summa, he has five in that case five arguments. Aquinas has many more than five arguments existence of God, but he has five ways in the Summa, and then he talks about divine simplicity, and then he talks about divine perfection and goodness and infinity and so forth. And he gets at like he's in the eleventh question of the Summa before he talks about divine unity. And then eventually he also talks about God's revelation of himself as Trinity. So he, he works progressively. Um, and so talking about God as personal is a different set of arguments, um, which I'll say a word about in a moment. Let me first say, though, uh, the most non-trivial sense in which the argument we were just talking about leads to the affirmation of the first cause as one we could call God is, it leads to one who's the creator of being. Like, so one of the classical attributes of the God, of God as depicted in the um, Hebraic and New Testament revelation in the Old and New Testament is that God is the creator. That's a more distinctive idea about that's a biblical provenance than say uh, it's more that idea is more distinctly a biblical provenance than it is a Greek philosophical provenance. You don't really find a clear idea of God's creator, for example, Plotinus or Aristotle or Plato, although there are adumbrations of it. Um, so. If the creator is not just somebody who, like in a deistic way, once gave the world creation and then sort of uh, leaves it to itself, but in the biblical vision traditionally is one giving being to all things, sustaining them in existence, then the real distinction argument is going to give us a lot uh, in, the, in the order of thinking about God as the creator, who's giving us all being. We could say we participate in being in Aquinas' vision, because we receive it, and it's, in a certain way, our, all the, the real existence in us is our nature and our existence, our essence and our existence, is in a way um, modeled after something in God, because it derives from him, so it must somehow faintly resemble him. So that's one thing. you got the creator idea, that we're receiving being and existing because of God sustaining us in being, and then there you get ideas of providence and God governing the world that's coming from him, and you can get into problems of evil and so forth. But another thing you get is then the world of nature, created nature, like intelligence and free capacity to love responsibly, might be attributed to God by analogy, because he's caused in the natures of human beings immaterial perfections, such as the capacity to know reasonably through the medium of apprehensions, judgments, and uh, didactic reasonings, and the capacity to freely choose and to choose lovingly. So could there exist analogies to God in his eternal perfection of his essence and existence in his eternal infinite being? Uh, could there exist analogies to the life of intelligence and the life of love? And that's a different set of arguments Aquinas makes in a philosophical way to show that if those perfections exist in us and they are immaterial in kind and God is immaterial in a more infinitely perfect way, then something like divine intelligence or understanding and divine loving must exist in God in an infinitely more perfect way. 
And then you can talk about how different and other the divine intellect and the divine will must be if God is truly immaterially intellectual and loving, because he can't be the way we are. Because we're itty-bitty creatures, and we learn, and we have finite knowledge, and it depends on animal sensations, and lots of other limitations incur. So we can talk about what it might be or how it cannot be and must be for God to be intelligent and loving in a subsequent series of, of arguments. Yeah, very good. Well, um, let's see here. My next question actually is a question that someone has asked in the live chat, so maybe we'll uh, skip into some questions from the live sure. audience. Um, and this question is, um, let's see here, let me, uh, it comes from Jeffrey Nadosho, Nadosho, sorry if I'm not pronouncing your name right, but uh, it says, uh, what is the essential difference between the Kalam cosmological argument and the Thomistic argument? Um, well, okay. You know, the Kalam argument is usually contrasted with a different argument of Aquinas, uh, which would be his prima via or the first way that he gives in the Summa, which is the argument from uh, change or causality and motion, sorry, motion and change. So the Kalam argument comes from Al-Ghazali historically. It was held by, well, versions of it are articulated in the Christian medieval world by people like Bonaventure. Today it has some defenders like William Lane Craig. And it's basically an argument from historical causality of the cosmos that if you go back in time far enough, um, there has to be something first that kickstarts off the whole process of cosmic history. And today, the, ten the tendency is to try to see that an alignment here between the traditional Kalam argument, there has to be a first causality in time, and Big Bang cosmology. So if we go back, you know, let's just say probably something like 13.7 billion years, and we have enough um, rigorous modern physical physics uh, modern knowledge of the cosmos in light of modern physics, we can demonstrate necessarily that there's a primal cause of the physical universe that itself, because it's a primal cause, can't be material. It must be immaterial and in some way very, very powerful. And so that's an argument for the existence of God from a historical first motor, as it were. Aquinas rejects that argument. Uh, he doesn't think it works because he thinks, on the first, first of all, that we don't have a demonstrative knowledge of what happened a long time ago. We have conjectural probable argument, and we don't have the tools or the observational skills to be back in what already took place and is no longer taking place and to infer what happened. I mean, those things that happened 13.7 billion years ago as we measure time are not real now, and we don't have immediate philosophical experience of them. So that's one problem. And another problem is Aquinas thinks there's nothing intrinsically incoherent about the idea of God creating in the world, sustaining in being by his omnipotence, and it always existing perpetually. That's to say, this is the idea of an eternal creation, not in the sense that creation would have an eternal plenitude of divine life, but in the sense of it would, you could have the idea of a, a world always perennially existing while being dependent on God entails no intrinsic contradiction. So Aquinas thinks that you could presume, for the sake of argument, that as Aristotle thought in the physics, the universe has always existed. And yet, you could also argue, as Aristotle argues in the physics, that the universe has always had and always does have a first cause that's immaterial, that's God. And Aquinas thinks that that's right. He doesn't actually think the universe has always existed. He thinks divine revelation tells us it hasn't, and we believe that rightly by faith. But philosophy can't. Uh, make a decision about that. It can simply give probable arguments, including, we could say today, arguments based on Big Bang cosmology, but that the Kalam argument is not a demonstrative. What we can argue from is the world around us now, because everything that exists is, you know, there's a distinction of nature and existence, or essence and existence in everything. The world that we see around us now does require something giving it existence, no, long, no matter how long it's been around, whether it's been around for 6,000 years, or 13.7 billion years, or whether it just keeps going because there's like a, always going a great cycle of being, always being sustained in being, that reality, no matter how old it is or what cosmology we have, is a reality given existence by a transcendent cause. He uses a similar kind of argument in the Prima Via, but not from existence, uh, which I'd associate more with the Secunda Via. The, the second way is more like the, the real distinction argument. Not exactly the same, but similar. The first way is from change, the fact that everything is subject to ontological change of quantity, quality, um, location, or you could say change of um, generation and corruption. 
and every, everything that's being changed, everything's changing is dependent on other things that are changing it. Not in the past, but now, in actual real time. So we are all right now actually dependent on other moving, changing realities that change us. And they are being changed and moved by other realities. And those realities are being changed and moved by other realities. And so it's a giant network or web of actually existing interdependent changes that are in, imply real causality exerted on realities that are interdependent on one another. You cannot have a reality composed just of those kinds of things in the actual order now. So there must be something transcendent of the entire web of interdependent, mutually affecting, changing realities. And that reality must be immaterial and, the, uh, and uh, not changing, an unchanged changer or an unmoved mover who's giving being to all the things that are subject to change and movement. So that's not a column argument. Okay, so that is, I mean, I the attraction to me is Aquinas doesn't incur any of the special problems you have based on where you are in history and what cosmology you have and whether your cosmology changes. And he also doesn't have to know too, too, too much about the beginning of the world and get in arguments with um, people who say before the Big Bang, it was a, you know, there was a special contraction. Before that, there had been a previous Big Bang. And who knows, you know, maybe it's a universe that's cyclically always ongoing. We, we don't have to really depend upon those kinds of um, scientific gotcha hypotheses in order to demonstrate the existence of God, nor should we try to. Yeah. This question comes from uh, somebody whose YouTube name is Epistemology. I think it was supposed to be a pun on epistemology, I'm not sure. Uh, do we know that anything at all can exist non-materially? Uh, so that's a yes or no yeah. answer, and, and obviously both so, of us are going to say so yes. Okay, so Aquinas thinks you can demonstrate the, the existence of God as immaterial first cause because you can show that the reality that's the first unchanged change or first unmoved mover must not be material if he's if he's not ontological. If you're material, you're ontologically dependent by nature. You're going to be acted on by others and changed by them. You came into being through ontological dependency. Every material reality is generated. So if God exists, he's immaterial. And if he has existence perfectly, he, he's purely actual. He doesn't have potentiality, but whatever has material is has potentiality. So God doesn't have materiality, so he's immaterial. All right, so there's there's different ways to argue this about God from the different ways of argument. Can you prove that angels exist? There's different views about this in the Thomistic literature because Aquinas offers arguments from fittingness, and he argues and he offers arguments of demonstration that we might say what the what the religious traditions designate as angels or what divine revelation designates as angels exist. Aquinas. So this is what I'm saying is if the Bible says they exist, if the religious traditions say they exist. Uh, if people believe in demonic possession or there are bad spirits or good spirits, I mean, can we show that there's any philosophical possibility of that? We don't have to make philosophical decisions about, and you know, angelic visitors or angelic, you know, uh, demonic powers. But can we just say that there's anything like immaterial being out there? Uh, Aquinas' strongest arguments, and uh, the, the arguments Aquinas makes where he seems to be trying to make the strongest kind of demonstrations come uh, about when he's talking about the hierarchy of being. And he says, look, there's immaterial non-living reality, then there's vegetative life that has no form of sensate animal knowledge, and there's animals that have sensate knowledge, and the complex animals have um, sensate memory and sensate animal prudence, and then you have immaterial uh, life in human animals where you have an immaterial soul of, that's form of a material body. And you can demonstrate, by the way, that the soul is immaterial. Aquinas thinks that, and that there's therefore some subsistence of the soul after death, and that's another issue. So he thinks you can demonstrate the material of the human soul and its subsistence after death, um, and therefore it's special creation by God. It doesn't come, the spiritual soul doesn't come from the parents through generation, especially created by God. But can you show there's a purely spiritual reality above the human being? Well, he thinks if you look at the, if God is, is totally immaterial, knowledge and love, and then you have, you know, rocks, plants, animals, human beings, it would seem by a kind of exemplarism that you must have something that is purely immaterial personal, uh, purely immaterial creation that would be angelic personhood that's intellectual and voluntary, capable of knowledge and love, but not realized in an animal form. That's where he makes his sort of strongest arguments. They're arguments from the hierarchy of being. It's very alien to us today. We want efficient causality arguments. Yeah. But he gives his arguments actually from the exemplarism and the, the degrees of perfection, the grades of reality that must resemble God 
in distinct, um, you might say, grades of being. So if there's an immaterial perfection in the first cause, it must be realized in various degrees of being, and it's realized in us in immaterial fashion in a less perfect way than it would be in angelic persons. That's the strongest argument he kind of makes. You could, if you want, you could make that an argument of fittingness and say it shows that reason could be open to the idea, the biblical idea of angels, and that the religious traditions, not just biblical re revelation, but the religious traditions of the human beings bear witness to a widespread belief in the angelic world that doesn't have to be dismissed as mythological because there seems to be a metaphysical grounds for taking seriously the idea of angels in light of the hierarchy, hierarchy of perfections in nature and the gradations of being as expressive of the perfection of the divine being. Yeah, very good. So, yeah, I mean, any argument for the existence of God is going to be the, an argument for uh, or a demonstration of something immaterial. So, I mean, that'd be one route to go. And then uh, you, you briefly touched on the, you know, there's plenty of arguments from the philosophy of mind showing that uh, the mind or the soul is immaterial. And so there's a, there's a lot of different ways to go about that. But uh, Father White, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. We're going to go ahead and wrap up, uh, things up here. Uh, but before we go, I want to say thank you to everybody joining us. I uh, appreciate everybody who watched and commented and all that. Be sure to hit the like button, subscribe, uh, leave us a review if you're listening on the podcast. And, of course, if you want access to the bonus segment, Five More Minutes with Father Thomas Joseph White, as well as access to all of our bonus segments, you can follow the Patreon link in the description below and become a supporter of the show. I really appreciate it, guys. And, uh, again, uh, Father White, thanks so much to you for joining me. I really appreciate it, sir. Great to be here.